0: Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, Church of the Valley. Thank you for joining us as we continue our Back to Basics series. Last week, we began with the gospel, because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is simply that, good news. And we wanted to make sure that any and everyone who is part of COV knows what we are all about, and that is making known that Jesus is the Christ. But where do we get that? Did we just imagine that or and want others to just buy into our idea? Not at all. Did we receive some writings on golden tablets that only one person could decipher? Nope, not that either. Do we believe in a book that was written thousands of years ago because the book says it's true? Well, we believe the Bible was written thousands of years ago, but we don't just believe it's because it says that it's true that we believe it's true. The Bible, or as many refer to it, the Word of God, is a literary communication of God to his creation. And on top of being communication, it is also historical, poetic, analytic, and points out a genealogy that we all ought to know. So why is the Word of God, the Bible, so important? It is how we know the author and the subject of the book is by reading it and starting to understand more and more of who God is by opening it and reading it and actually applying it to our lives. You may have a disposition that when someone speaks about the Bible or maybe speaks about inerrancy, that it was uh, written correctly, that there's no error in it and profitability, that it is useful for things. When we talk about the Bible, you may think, yes, finally, Bible people, but be careful. Because the opportunity to worship the Word of God, the book, rather than the God of the Word is so easy, it is so subtle, and so consistent, especially in the more reformed and fundamental traditions within evangelicalism. In these traditions, we, or sometimes I, tend to treat the Bible more like a machine gun than a scalpel. We then want to attempt to make people behave a particular way rather than believe in a particular person. Last week, I said, This is what we are about as a church offending those who think they can work their way to God with the beautiful reality that God has worked his way to us. And when we understand the gospel, we don't attempt to get people to be more moral as if they can work their way to God, but we attempt to point people to the Savior who can transform a person how God decides to transform that person. And that is what the gospel does. The gospel is our filter to which when we open the Bible, when we read the Bible, we're thinking through the filter of the gospel. It is all about this reconciliation plan between God and man rather than all about man or people attempting to try to get other people to work hard enough so God will accept them. See, religions do that. Let cults perpetrate that, but we point people to the redemptive plan that God came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified, And I'll add, because it isn't as obvious to us as we're reading this as it was to the culture when Paul said this, that we preach Christ crucified and resurrected, not a moral law book to get you to attempt to be a better person. See, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And in order to be forgiven, you don't need to be the most articulate or well-read theologian. You need to be humble enough to understand that you need the God of the word to be your savior and your refuge. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says about the scriptures to his young apprentice, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what he says, starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become... Become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Get used to that passage. We're going to walk through it. So let's think about what Paul is saying. Paul is speaking to Timothy, a younger pastor in the faith. And by younger, most people think that he was around 40 to 45, which means, yay, I'm still young for like 50 more days. But he, Paul says to Timothy to continue in what he has learned and become convinced of and know those whom you have learned it from. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, just a few chapters before, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy not only had the scriptures taught to him, but he had godly examples that over a long period of time exemplified what knowing these scriptures are like seeing how God's very words affected both his mother and grandmother. And then in verse 15, one more time, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy was read and he was taught the words of the prophets, the Old Testament, from an early age. And I think his parents we are all looking for the perfect formula on how to get our kids to be Bible reading, God fearing children and grow up to pursue and follow Jesus. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse six, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. So we begin to start children off in the scriptures or the Jesus Storybook Bible and in things like Awana. But here is what I can tell you more than anything. It is God that draws and sustains children to trust and follow him. But what I also want to stress is that no amount of devotionals and Bible studies guarantees that a child will actually pursue Christ. It is only God in his abundant grace that any of us want Christ. See, he initiates, he knocks at the door of our hearts, but if we receive him, he comes in and sits with us and us with him and we enjoy the fruit of grace knowing that he is ours and we are his. So there is no guarantee of a formula that works other than God in his grace, removing the veil for those who would bow their heads and their will to put Christ not only first, but at the center of their lives. All the more reason to pursue Christ, parents, in front of your kids, in front of your children, and to pray for and to pray with your children, to let them know what your relationship with God is like. Maybe you should talk with them about the playlist as they watch it with you and answer their questions that maybe they have. And put in this time, not because it guarantees salvation, but because God can and does use our effort. So verse 15, one more time, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that the scriptures make us wise until unto salvation in faith in Jesus Christ. But hear me, don't divorce God's word from God's redemptive plan. That's why we taught what we did last week, because we wanted to make sure that everything we walk through when we talk about the basics of the faith are rooted and foundationally understood through the gospel. We know Jesus Christ because he reveals himself in these scriptures. We understand who he is, not because we made him up, but because he revealed himself in the text. But don't make attempting to memorize and even obey all of what this says your target. Hear me, I just said that. Don't try to memorize and even obey all that is in this as your target of justification. It only gets you a legalistic gold medal, but it doesn't get you salvation. Salvation is found in one person, and his name is Jesus Christ through faith that is confidence in God's promises, even though not all of them have fully been realized yet. So there is one way of missing the point of the Bible, to treat it like it's a rule book. And then we justify ourselves by how good we are at obeying it, or maybe even not how good we are, but we just compare ourselves to other people. And this comparison of others around us make us modern day Pharisees. But there's another way of swinging the pendulum the other direction, which treats the Bible as a bunch of separate verses in the Bible that make us feel good about ourselves during hard times. And we read and we quote and we understand each verse within a vacuum without any expectation of context in which what is said is said and who it's said by and who it's said to. Before the pandemic began, consistently, every week, a bunch of men would join me uh, in our community and they would join me in my office. And we would walk verse by verse, passage by passage, through what we call the synoptic gospels. It means the gospels that were seen together. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we would walk through these different accounts of Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection. And as we would study different passages and stories of Jesus's life, and speak of context and what we read prior to what we were reading then and what generally would come after. I then would ask these men to walk through the common types of misinterpretations of Christianity, and we would read the passage and see what maybe a different uh, misinterpretation, a way to misinterpret the Bible might happen. We tended to use three different types of improper interpretations. The first one was the prosperity gospel. That the gospel is about how, uh, is all about how to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. And then the second misinterpretation would be fundamentalism, which would make it about how you could do enough to be self-sufficient. It was always grace is good, but there's also something you have to do. And then a third misinterpretation, we would call it a shallow interpretation, that doesn't read context into anything of what is being written, but takes a word or a phrase and makes it all about that word or phrase rather than what the author intended to communicate to his audience. Now, I have to confess, I've done all three of these. I've done all three of these while teaching at Church of the Valley. I have missed the point. My emphasis of doing uh, these three interpretations is to tell you that, man, I have done this wrong as well. And I can't promise you that I won't do it wrong again, but I intend, especially when we're teaching the Word of God, I intend to take into account context, original language, the place, the audience, the point of the author, and the background of the author. But I, like you, are not perfect, nor infallible, nor inerrant. So don't hear that if you do this wrong, you are less than or unholy or less than me in any way. You are a person just like me in need of grace. But you and I have a responsibility to take special care of these scriptures because how we share the truth of these scriptures makes a difference. It truly does. In James chapter 3 verse 1, the brother of Jesus says it this way, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now that verse is scary and it might be scary for those who care. It becomes white noise for those who don't. I hope you're the former, not because I want you to be scared of what the Bible says, but I do want all of us to take into account the magnitude of how important it is via how we handle and profess this text. John Calvin put it this way, The scriptures obtain full authority among believers only when men regard them as having sprung from heaven, as if there the living words of God were heard. The amount of care you take when it comes to teaching the word reflects the respect that you have for the Bible. So church, We want to hold the text in high regard while not being afraid to open it, to read it, and to talk with others about it. Being careful shouldn't make you opt out. It should make you respect God's word even more. So one more time, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to go to verse 16. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, before I tell you what that means specifically, let me give you some stats for the statisticians among us in our community. The Bible, known as a book, is actually 66 different books or 66 different letters written by close to 40 different authors in three different languages Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic on three different continents Asia, Africa, and Europe. Of these 66 books, there are four different categories of types of writings being narratives, and then letters, or we also call them epistles, poetry, and wisdom literature. And we know the Bible to be written over at least 1,500 years of different letters that were put together to make the Bible. So with those statistics and explanations out of the way, all of them foreshadow, all of the books of the Bible either foreshadow or proclaim or point back to the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it is talking about Jesus. He's found on every page. Sometimes you have to look a little bit more carefully, but it all points to God's redemptive plan through his son. And the entire Bible is one story about God and his creation. It is a story of redemption where God redeems messed up people who through their nature decide to reject God. But God draws men and women and children to himself through the perfect life, through the perfect worth work, through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus from the dead, our Redeemer, who has come. And he has given us faith in his work and victory over death. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. And the Bible teaches you about that. It points to all of that. It foreshadows. It testifies. It points back to the message of reconciliation that we define as the gospel. See, I don't want us to worship the book. I don't want us to treat the book like we can be justified if we carry it in our car or even read it cover to cover every single year. But the tension is, I don't want you to forget that you cannot know You cannot worship God without knowing who he is, which is defined in the word of God. So there's a tension. So one more time, verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So scripture is God-breathed. It is spoken by God through what is known in the theological term as the dual authorship of Scripture, which means that God breathed it out through the human authors of who said or wrote down the very words that you find in Scripture. God used the personalities and the context of the human authors to proclaim what they did, but they aren't inspired in and of themselves but, as the Holy Spirit led them to pen and proclaim the very words of God that you now find in this bound Bible, in 2 Peter chapter one, verse 21, it's, Peter says it this way: "For prophecy, the utterance of God's word had its origin in the, had never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So so God breathed means that the Holy Spirit, God's very Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke these very words through humans. Listen to this quote regarding God breathed. It says it this way, the word God breathed out occurs only here and indicates that all scripture owes its origin and contents to the divine breath. The Spirit of God, the human authors were powerfully guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. As a result, what they wrote is not only without error, but of supreme value for man. It is all that God wanted it to be. It constitutes the infallible rule of faith and practice for mankind. We as leaders adhere to the belief that the Word of God is infallible. Without error is what I mean as it was originally written. What that means is that there are some things in Scripture that were not originally written by God, but added in years, and in some cases hundreds of years later, not by prophets nor apostles, but by scribes that were copying the Scripture so we could have it in different languages that were attempting to make sense of what they were transcribing. Two places that this happens that are very obvious are Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which in your Bible, unless you're using a King James version, ought to explain that it was not in the original writings and manuscripts. And thus, we do not teach it as the inspired word of God. And other places where we have actually seen this happen, and we taught on this, was in John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11. We have in plan, just so you know, to get back to the series in Jesus' name, amen, as we've been going through the book of John, but we're waiting until we're meeting in person consistently again. But if you have questions specifically about what do you mean there are things in the Bible that shouldn't be there, I'd encourage you to watch the sermon that we called Desiring to Obey in Spirit and in Truth. It's in this series called In Jesus' Name, Amen. You can go to our website. Laura, our creative director, has done a great job of cataloging everything. And look up chapter eight. It'll be the first one that shows up. And it's called Desiring to Obey in Spirit and in Truth. And I'd encourage you to watch that before we talk about it if you have more questions. Because I feel like I laid out what that means in that sermon. So why do I bring that up? Because we believe the word of God as it was originally written is completely from God. We believe that it was God's very words. But we do see things in scripture that were added later on that we do not treat as the actual word of God. But we, see, here's the thing, and I know this might make some of us nervous. What do you mean? It's not real? It's not? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. There's actually places where we've seen, because of manuscripts, we've realized that they were not in the original writings. But here's the thing that may push on us a little bit. See, we don't get to pick and choose which verses we listen to. See, there are some cultural verses and passages that if I'm honest, I would love to ditch to make Jesus, if you will, a little bit more culturally relevant, or the passages about lust or pride that I know I fail at often. But again, we don't get to pick and choose because as we have said many, many, many times, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Scripture contradicts us. And we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, which is this script, uh, this theological term known as a hermeneutic, A hermeneutic is just a fancy theological word for interpreting scripture, which is very important because we can get the Bible to say whatever we want if we don't interpret it correctly. It reminds me of a story. A new pastor was visiting the homes of the members in his new church. At one house, it seemed obvious that someone was in the home, but when he knocked on the door, no one came to answer it. So after knocking a few different times, he took a card out and he wrote on the back of the card, Revelation 3.20, and then he stuck the card in the door. When the offering was processed just a few days later, that following Sunday, he found his own card returned to him and added from just Revelation 3.20 was added Genesis 3.10. Reaching for his Bible to check out the citation, he broke out into uncontrollable laughter. Revelation 3.20 begins, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Genesis 3.10 reads, I heard your voice in the garden, but I was afraid and I was naked. Now, that's a funny explanation of somehow the way that we sometimes treat the Bible. But we shouldn't interpret the Bible to get it to say whatever we want it to say. So we use hermeneutics. It is to have particular guardrails of how we read and interpret scripture. Let me give you a few, not an exhaustive list. There's so much more, but ones I'd implore you to start to think about how you view scripture if you haven't already. Here's the first one. I already said it. It's scripture interprets scripture. Here's what I mean when I say that. Don't base your interpretation of something on what you want it to mean. See, that's known as eisegesis but base something that needs to be interpreted by the totality of Scripture, based on what all of Scripture implies and says. See, commentators are helpful, but they're not always right. Pastors generally are helpful, but we make mistakes in our interpretations. Theologians use hermeneutics to show their work, but guess what? They can be wrong too. So when we study Scripture, don't take everyone's word for it if you're not sure. But study. Look at the context. Look at what is said before and after. Look at what is communicated in other letters within the Bible, especially by the same earthly authors. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's a way of interpreting that you allow the Scripture to speak for the Scripture. Next, context is king. Context simply means we take in account the author, the hearers, the original language, the cultural understanding, and other things that may affect what was being said within the place where it was said. How often can we read scripture where Jesus is speaking to someone? Maybe in, I think it's early on in John chapter 2, where he, he calls his mom woman. And in our culture, that might actually sound aggressive. We can't read tone. But what that meant was it was a very endearing comment. Woman, a uh, woman who matters to me is a, a better interpretation of why he used those words. So context makes a difference. And then there's the simple last one, which goes along with both of these. What does the text actually say? It's a term known as exegesis. See, eise- eisegesis is when we put our preference into the text But exegesis is when we see what it actually says, like we actually read the words that it says, because how often have we quoted something that we claimed God said, but we never looked at the text? My favorite one is God will never give you anything you can't handle. That's not what the text says. The text says that God will never allow you to be tempted in something you cannot bear without reaching out to him. And I think people tend to skip this last one, especially the idea of reading and seeing what it actually says when the text is clear about something, because we'd rather turn a blind eye so we don't have to be confronted with the fact that we fail often when we judge ourselves against scripture. Now, there are a lot more. And these are not all the hermeneutics that we could give, but I give you these three because I believe that these are foundational to our reading of the Bible. So we don't treat the Bible like a self-help book or a Ouija board or a rule book, but God's very words given to us. Church, like think about this for a second. God spoke to his creation and he gave us his word so we could know him and grow to look more like him. What a gift God has given us in his word. Now I know what you may be thinking. Tim, that's hard. Why do I have to care so much about how I interpret the Bible? Can't I just read it and feel good? Here's why. Because how we interpret the Bible reflects our respect and care for God. This is what he said. We claim he's our master. We claim that we know him. Why wouldn't we want to know more of him? Why wouldn't we want to know how to obey him the best that we can? So do we take seriously what he says? Or do we just read the Bible and do whatever we want? Last week, we tried to make as clear as possible that the way the Bible makes the most sense is through the lens of the gospel, through the filter of the gospel. Now, that may be the fourth hermeneutic and possibly the most important hermeneutic, the most important interpretation a Christian can possess. Because then the Psalms don't become things we sing or make us just feel good, but we read the Psalm in the shadow of God's redemptive plan unfolding, which brings praise to the lips of his people. If the gospel is the lens and the filter, then the books of the Bible that record Jesus's life, death and resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, aren't just informational But they're a reminder of how amazing God is to save sinners like you and I. One of my favorite things about the Bible is how it is written and what it actually says. Last week, I shared how before I was a Christian that it bothered me that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity is false. Because logically thinking, you wouldn't tell people how to disprove your faith within the scriptures that that faith is explained unless it were true. But another passage that has always blessed me was when Peter wrote to the exiled Christians around Rome. This was in uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter uh, 3, I believe. And these were the words of Peter. We had just studied 1 Peter, but now look at his words in 2 Peter. Here's what he says. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Even Peter understood that Paul was difficult to read and that some would misinterpret Paul's words and attempt to make made-up truths that were not in line with the rest of God's word. So why do I share all of this? Why is it so important that we look at scripture? Because friends, without scripture, we cannot understand, worship, obey, proclaim, or know the God that we claim we love. But even with scripture, we can worship the wrong thing. We can attempt to attain grace and we can miss the gospel completely. So last time, verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture trains us in righteousness. Scripture, when applied or obeyed for the right reasons, grows us to look more like Jesus. It begins with motivation, but it propels us to, to, towards an action of putting into practice God's very words, not to make us a better person, but to conform us more into the image of Christ so that the servant of Christ may be equipped for every good work. And as we have said over and over and over again, the good works that the Bible teaches are not about us doing subjectively nice things, but obeying God at his very words for the right reasons. So I begin with, or I did begin with, I don't want us to worship the word of God rather than the God of the word. And people can take that the wrong way. But let's look at how the Bible defines the word. In John chapter one, verses one through five, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. Any questions? Yes. That's confusing. And if we're honest, when someone says that they want to learn more about Jesus, what do we do? We send them to John and we tell them to just read the gospel of love known as John. But we send them in not realizing that the very beginning of the book starts off with a salutation or not with a salutation or even an explanation, but of a confusing proclamation about the word. See, word that he's that John is writing It's this Greek word which is logos, or some pronounce it logos. I don't care how you pronounce it, but it simply means truth. It is where we get the word logic from. In the beginning was the truth, and the truth was with God, and the truth is God. And he, the word, the truth, was with God in the beginning, and all things are made through him and for him, and he is life, and he is light, and that light shines in the darkness. And that doesn't make a lot of sense unless you read verse 14 or or, uh, unless you read verse 14, which says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and of truth. So the word, the truth, the word of God is the son of God revealed. That doesn't mean that Jesus turned into a book like Cogsworth turned into a clock. That's a Beauty and the Beast reference. I do. I understood that reference. But that God communicating to his creation is manifested in his son. So even though it is subtle to worship the Bible rather than the word, the truth, the son became flesh and dwelt among us. So like all things that we learn in Christianity, our motivation matters. Do we read the Bible to attempt to crack a code? Or do we read the Bible to justify ourselves? Do we read the Bible to make us feel better about ourselves? Or do we read the Bible because God in his grace revealed himself in the scriptures? And we know that God loved us while we were at our worst. And if God gave us his word, why wouldn't we want to read it? Apply it and learn how we can best love God back based on what he says. So I want to end with this. One that walks us through what I want us to notice when it comes to God's word told to us from God's word. Here's a list. God's word is, God is speaking to his creation through the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 The word is living and active, Hebrews 4.12 God provides us with the knowledge that leads to salvation in faith in Jesus Christ through his word, 2 Timothy 3.15. The word has been since the beginning, John chapter 1 verse 1, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, John 1.14. So here's my application for this week. Would we engage in God's word? Would we read it through the lens of the gospel and how God wants to remind us of his goodness through his reconciliation plan from us to God? I think a lot of times we choose to read books about, about the Bible other than the Bible itself. Would we open this text? Would we read it? I know that I've done that a lot. In fact, my office is full of books that I have read that tell me different things about the book. And there's nothing wrong with them unless you're replacing the word with them. So with that, I'm going to offer a suggestion. In fact, I'm going to offer a book recommendation, which I don't do that often. But this book's made a huge difference for me. But you know why it made a huge difference? Because it helped me study the Bible better. And it helped me understand my God more. So here's the book. It's by a... a, Theologian, but also a professor who is known as the prof at Dallas Theological Seminary. His name's Howard Hendricks, and the name of the book is Living by the Book. So if you're like, man, I really want to pick up a book, or I want to know how to interpret the Bible a little bit more consistently, or I just want to know my God better, the best thing you can do is read the Bible. But if you want to interpret the Bible better, I'd encourage you to pick up this book because I read this book 20 years ago and it changed my life as a new believer, as a new Christian, trying to engage in the word and know more about who God is. It helped me be able to read the word. And I only give you that recommendation because Howard Hendricks had a, a ministry that I admire. For 60 years, he invested in mostly young men at the seminary that he was at, but he poured into people who became pastors and elders and teachers of God's word and lay people in the faith that, who, that are gospel-centered. So here's what I'm going to end with. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 31. Here's what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in a chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked, how can I? he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I want you to focus on the Ethiopian treasurer's response. How can I, unless someone explains it to me? That's what he said when asked about the text that he was reading. I began a ministry, many of you have heard of it or know about it or were, were a part of it called Compelled, that was a response to Philip's question about understanding the word of God And it changed how I did ministry. I devoted myself to walking through scripture with others. And currently, and I primarily do that with you, our church, while teaching the text in a sermon. But I don't think anything is more effective than sitting across the table from someone or in today's context on the phone or via FaceTime or via Zoom and reading and talking and questioning and explaining the text together in real time and in real life. So here is your application. There are some godly people in our community that read and apply the word of God because they love Jesus. I'd encourage you, if you feel like you're missing out on something, to reach out to others within the community. Or you can even reach out to me. I can't guarantee you that I'll meet with you. But I could connect you with someone I already meet with through the elders or the staff or some of the lay people who are not on staff or not elders and point you to some of them to study scriptures with. See, we shouldn't go at this alone. We should study the scriptures. But did you hear what I said right there? The scriptures. Not just read a book with someone else, but open the actual Bible. Read a little, talk a little, pray a little, and hold one another accountable to apply what we decipher that the Lord is telling us to do. There isn't any secret sauce to walking with the Lord or being in his community. There really isn't. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, reading and applying and talking about this book is not optional. It's just what we do. The word of God points to the God of the word who chooses to transform us through his grace as we love him and do what he says through love inspired obedience. That's my sermon. Going to encourage you like I do every single week to jump on the Zoom call, be a part of that call with us, talk with us. We're going to do some special stuff this week. Uh, So if you want to jump in, if you haven't been on it in a while, I'd encourage you to be on it. If you're on it every week, thank you. Hope to see you at 1130 today on Sunday. And also, if you are a part of this community, an act of worship that we all get to partake in is offering. And so if you'd like to give of your offering, as uh, Darth Miller said earlier this morning, uh, you can give online. You can do it by sen- sending a check or you can go to COV, uh, Church of the Valley, Covcovalley.com and go to give. And you can give either via PayPal or we're now using a new uh, thing with Faithlife. And, and hopefully that'll be a little bit easier if you want to give. But listen, giving is not because you have to. Giving is an act of worship and is an opportunity for you to trust God, even with your finances. And so thank you for those who are giving. And I trust that between you and God, you'll come up with what you feel led to give towards the ministry of Church of the Valley. Let's pray. God, there's so much more that I want to say. There's so many other things I want to unpack. But Lord, I know that you're the one who does the work through your word and through your spirit. And so I ask that as we have listened to this message, that people just wouldn't have takeaways that would make them smarter, but they'd have things that they're going to do differently because you have done something in their soul and convicted them to put into practice your word. So Lord, thank you for each person who's listening to this. Thank you for those who give and for the way that you use that uh, income and money to make disciples of all nations and generations. May we be good stewards of your people and of the finances that you give us, Lord. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.